Hi everybody, anyone who has ever seen the animated film called Up remembers that touching montage that occurs pretty early on in the, in the film where you have Carl and Ellie, two childhood sweethearts who fall in love and, and you see their life in clips put together, compressing 50 or 60 years into about four minutes without any dialogue. We learn that Carl and Ellie, they couldn't have children, but they've spent their lives saving up their money and dreaming of going to Paradise Falls. And towards the end of the montage, when Ellie passes away, we feel Carl's grief because we've watched them grow old together in those four minutes. It's a very touching scene, this parade of two people journeying through life together. And you know, I don't think I've ever married a couple that didn't have that sort of thing in mind. That's the dream, right? That's what we're gonna to be together. But you fast forward a few decades, 40 or 50 years, there's so many people who, if they're honest, would say, I don't know that we ever quite got that dream come true. Because many times, one and usually both partners just never put into practice the sorts of things that I want us to talk about today as we continue our Thrive series. So turning your Bible to John chapter two. That's our passage for today. It's the first recorded miracle of Jesus, which happened to occur at a wedding. And we're gonna draw some truths out of this passage for our own lives and applications. Let's start in verse one. Chapter two of John. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana, Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding, and when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. So the story starts with the wine running out. Now in those days, wedding feasts, you have to understand, they lasted as long as a week. And so the host was expected to have a lot of wine, enough to last a week long, and therefore this would have been a horrible embarrassment. What, you're out of wine? Smack dab in the middle of the festivities? Some think that Jesus' mother, Mary, must have been a relative or a friend of the host because she takes such a personal interest in the fact we've run out of wine. And you know what occurs to me? Sooner or later, many a married person says, in their own words, the same sort of thing. We've run out of wine in our marriage. If not all the way out, we're running on low. And you know this is happening when you hear someone say, it's just not like it used to be, or worse. Maybe I didn't marry the right person in the first place. Maybe we were never meant to be married. I wonder where you are in this but I want you to pay attention. To whom did Mary turn with this problem? She went straight to our Lord Jesus, her son, which leads to the first of four things. I want you to jot down if you're a note taker. Here it is. When the wine is running low, only Jesus makes things flow. Some years ago, 
probably 10 or so years into our marriage, Suzanne and I and the boys, we were in Colorado having fun in the high altitude, but one night we were particularly exhausted and finally got the boys into bed and I, I went around the corner to where she was and I complained about something that the boys had done, I think, and she didn't want to hear it, at which point she complained about me complaining. Well, this got me irritated, and so I sniped at her, and she, we were just kind of going back and forth. And it all had to do with how inconvenienced we were feeling. You know how these things go, when you're, especially when you're tired, and you should just go to sleep. You just shouldn't talk. And, but we were both irritated and just sort of going at it. And finally, she said, Ken, you are exasperating. I'm just glad I don't have to work for you at church, at which point, I marched around the bathroom, just leapt onto the bed and blurted out, well, don't worry, because I would never hire you. Now, if you were here last weekend for Pastor Dan's sermon, about now you're thinking, you know, Pastor Dan's not looking quite so bad anymore compared to you, Ken. <laughs> so let me finish the story. Suzanne comes around and she she plops down on the bed too. We're both staring at the ceiling. And after a while, I broke my silence and I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm so perfectionist. I'm sorry I'm so demanding. And she said, I'm sorry I'm not as efficient with time management as you are. And we just kind of went back and forth apologizing for things. And then she said something I, I hadn't seen coming. She said, Ken, I'm sorry that I'm probably not all of the person that you dreamed you were marrying. And I had to think about that and said, well, I'm sorry, I'm probably not the person you dreamed you were marrying. But she said, I'm still glad I married you and you're still my best friend. And I said the same, I'm glad I married you, baby. And you're my best friend. And you know what happened with our souls now soft? We prayed together and Jesus walked right back into our marriage that night. Because, because why? Because he had two soft, humble hearts surrendered. And that's where he can do good miracles. Husbands, wives, if you won't humble yourself, it's hard to get that wine flowing again, but if you'd humble yourself, you'd invite him back in. I'm telling you, he can make old things new. He can bring, bring death back to life. And so when the wine is running low, Jesus makes things flow. Mary turns to her son, Jesus, and says, hey, they need wine, do something. And this is really interesting in the story because Jesus pushes back. He pushes back a little bit on his, on his mom. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Because my time has not yet come. What's he saying? Well, he's aware of the Father's timetable, and apparently he wasn't thinking, this is where I'm going to start doing the miracles. But in this instance, the Father lets Mary, or I guess, dictate the timeline. And so Mary's telling her son, yes, it is. You do something. I need you to do something. Verse 5. The interesting thing is, she, she kind of works around Jesus. She actually says to the servants who are standing here, hey, you all, you do whatever he tells you. 
You, you do whatever he's telling you. You know, it's, which was maybe just the slightest bit manipulative when you think about it. So, you know, moms, I guess if you've ever been the slightest bit manipulative, here's your verse. She tells those servants, hey, I've told him to do something, so you be ready. He's going to do something. I'm going now, but you do whatever he says. Nearby, it says in verse 6, stood, stood six stone water jars. The kind used for ceremonial washing, each that was hold, that could hold 20 to 30 gallons. And he says to the servants in verse 7, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Now, this is great. You picture the servants. They, you know, they're just there. And he said, you know, I need to go fill all these jars with water. You picture these servants going, who is this guy? Does he not realize we don't have a water problem? We got a wine problem here. Because it, it doesn't make sense. They don't know what's going to happen. But what I want you to realize is when he was telling them to fill these 20 and 30 gallon jars with water, he, he wasn't telling them to do just a little chore. No, because you don't pick up a 20 or 30 gallon jar made of clay and you don't just carry it. I mean, that's, if you fill that up and you try to carry it, you're talking several hundred pounds. Right? So what he was telling him is, no, I'm going to need you to go back and forth and back and forth and gallon by gallon, you're going to slowly and surely, you're going to fill these 20 and 30 gallon jars up, all of them, to the brim. In other words, he was asking them to do a lot of grunt work. Because if they hadn't, he couldn't have done the miracle? No. See, that's just it. He didn't have to have their help. He could have just waved his hands and said, water turned to wine. But that's not how he chose to do it. He waited for the servants to involve themselves faithfully before he did the miracle, which leads to the second thing that I want us to see today. The key to Jesus' miracle is be faithful with your little role. You, you got to be faithful with your little role. See, the, the servants, they didn't have a big, glorious role in this miracle. We don't even know what their names are. They're just asked to put in the grunt work. But in so doing, he was giving them a front row seat to his first miracle. And I'm convinced that one of the biggest reasons that we don't see more miracles happening in marriages today is that most people push back when you talk about being faithful in your little role, that little ordinary mundane stuff of marriage. No thanks, that's not what I want. I want it like a, like a cinematic movie. I want a big, grand, important, famous uh, role. And little roles in marriage, are they're especially hard for, for any of us who have what the world might consider kind of a big role professionally. Maybe you're a doctor or a lawyer, or a CEO. And sometimes people with big roles out in the world have the, have the hardest time coming home and taking on the towel in the basin and washing the feet of another that's required in marriage. But you show me any extraordinary, solid marriage, not just on the surface, but it really is. And I'll show you behind the scenes a marriage that was built by two people who faithfully stacked one ordinary brick atop the next ordinary brick day after day 
after day. Ordinary bricks like dirty diapers, doctor's visits, dirty clothes and dishes and homework that the kids need help with and extracurricular activities that you need transportation and chores that need doing and colleges that need funding and bills that need paying and disagreements that need settling gently. The key to Jesus' miracle is being faithful with your little role. Jesus said, he who can be trusted with a little can be trusted with a lot. Luke 16, 10. And so it shouldn't really surprise us that many times he waits and in essence says, oh, I'll pour out my miraculous grace in your marriage once I see you being faithful in the little things, putting in the hot, sweaty, mundane work that builds a strong marriage. But Let's, let's pull back just a minute, and, and I want to give you a broader picture of what's going on here with credit to author uh, Les Parrott for this helpful graph. Um, you'll see on the x-axis, um, uh, this will be the number of years that you've put into marriage. And on the y-axis is what we'll call, we'll call this the fulfillment or the happiness axis. Okay. Now, when people get married, most everybody, if you, if you ask them on a scale from one to 10, how excited and happy are you uh, now that you're getting married? And you know, they might not say 10. Some people will say 10, but you know, it usually is going to be at least somewhere north of eight, somewhere maybe between eight and nine. I, I'm pretty happy. And when two people get married in their naivete, we tend to think, and from here, it's just going to go up and to the right. Right? Wrong! Studies show that's not what happens. What happens is people get married and after several months or after a year or two or three, things start dipping. Nose dive. It's kind of weird, right? And all too many people, they see it. Wait, 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 this isn't what I signed up for. And sort of like stocks, they're like, sell, sell, sell. I, brought the, buy, I bought the wrong stock. Nonsense. Don't sell on the dip. You've just found out that marriage is full of the mundane, of the little roles that you didn't know you were signing up for. Which begs then the question on this graph, does it ever bottom out? Yes. Usually studies show somewhere around the 15 to 20 year mark, which coincidentally tends to be when people have adolescence in their home. At which point right now many of you are like, Maybe we're not so abnormal after all. No, you're not the only ones. And here's the good news. The study shows that if you hang in there, it does come back. And over the next five and 10 and 20 years to follow, once you've been hanging in there, you're being faithful with the little roles every day, you're realizing you're stewarding a lot of big blessings that you set out for in pursuit of when you were young. Even getting back to the point of happiness that you were when you were engaged and married and even going beyond there. So there is a reward for those who persevere. But the key is being faithful with your little role every single day. Now these servants, they didn't realize it, 
but Jesus had turned the water into wine. So when was it discovered? When was the miracle actually discovered? Not until the wine was poured out in the interest of the guests. Look at verse eight. Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They they hadn't discovered it yet, and they wouldn't have discovered it if they just stood there. They had to pour it out and start serving it up, which leads to the third thing I I wanna point out today. You and I, you'll have to pour yourself out for your spouse if you want miracles in your house. Only as the wine of our lives is poured out in the interest of another do the miracles start to be discovered. The problem is that many of us, we're, we're just better at saying me, me, me. I need you to pour into me. But often Jesus' miracles are predicated upon your willingness to pour yourself out in the interest of your spouse. A couple of years ago, I got a Christmas card from a friend, a different part of the country. And as we do at Christmas time, I was looking through the photos for that day and I noticed one conspicuous absence in the photo, his wife. So the next day I called and said, hey man, long time no see, got your Christmas card, thanks. And I gotta ask, you know, where's your wife? He said, ah, Ken, we haven't talked in a while. We divorced a few months ago. I'm like, really? Why? He said, well, I just found that I was having to respond to her needs so often. I was like, yeah, sure, well, you know, me too. But why'd you divorce? He said, well, I just told you. Because I just found out that I was having to respond to her needs so often. I'm thinking, buddy, you missed the memo. You gotta pour yourself out for your spouse if you wanna see miracles in your house. That's how marriages are built. By contrast to that story, I'll tell you about another friend of mine. His name's Aubrey. He made an impact on me and many others. About a decade ago, when his then wife, Joanne, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, he always stayed so close to her, driving her wherever he went, taking her with him. And though I didn't know this until she was gone, he cared for her in ways that you'd have never known about. He knew that she'd always prioritized looking beautiful which would get progressively harder as she declined mentally. And seeing what was happening, he he went over to the mall. (laughs) This is awesome. He went over to the mall and he sits through a makeup clinic with a bunch of ladies who teach him how to apply the makeup. And even up to the end of Joanne's life, he would help her get up and get dressed and he would apply her makeup that she couldn't do on her own. Now, you gotta understand, Aubrey's a manly man. He was very successful in his you know, working years. And he, he could have, I'm sure, put her in somebody else's care, but he didn't. Um, with gratitude for all that she had poured out for him in her strong years, for their family, he poured himself out for her in her final years, right up to the end. And that is precisely what God has always had in mind for those of us who are in Christ. Not that we would be seeking to be served, but that we would seek to serve others in the likeness of our Lord Jesus. 
who, as Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2, said, though, though he was God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. No, instead he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And after growing up and living the sinless life that none of us could live, he died the death of punishment that all of us deserved. So that on the third day he could conquer the grave and triumph over it, rising, so that we might have the hope of life everlasting ourselves. He's the one we're following. And he was never about me, 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 me. He was about laying down his life. Let's go back to the story, verse nine. And when the master of the ceremonies tasted the water that had now been turned to wine, you didn't know where it had come from, but the servant knew. What did he do? He called the bridegroom over and he said, hey, usually the, server, the host serves the best wine first, and then whenever it's a little bit full and doesn't care so much, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have saved the best till now. What's up with that? Fourth and final thing I want you to see today, the finest wine takes the longest time. He said, you've saved the best for last. And when I think of a marriage that got better and better over time, I think of Martin Luther from 500 years ago. Remember, he was a Catholic priest and God had, had gotten a hold of him and he'd realized that the gospel, the gospel is what saves us trusting in Christ and what Christ has done for us, not trusting in our ability to do enough good things to prove to God that, that he ought to go ahead and, and show us grace and forgiveness. No, 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 he, he, he finally realized it, it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. And he, he realized, Luther did, if there's anything infallible, it's scripture, it's God's word, it's not the Pope. Nothing against the Pope, but he's a mere mortal. And so he goes on record with a lot of these convictions and it causes quite a stir in the traditional church. He's making the gospel crystal clear and he's hoping to, to lead the whole church into a reformation, exposing what was wrong and getting it corrected, but they would not reform. Instead, they threw Luther out and they called him and those who followed him protesters or protestants, and that's where we, the Protestant church, came from. Well, among his conclusions from studying God's word, Luther said, I can't find any basis for keeping priests or nuns from marrying, not scripturally. And, and there were some nuns off in another place, and they get a hold of this article, and they're like, amen, brother, we want to get married. But 500 years ago, you didn't just give up being a celibate nun or priest without knowing you may pay a price for this, a steep price. You might even be killed by the church for this infringement. So they send word to Luther, and they say, hey, could you please come over here and rescue us because we want to get out of here alive, and we'd kind of like to get married. And so he says, okay, and he puts together a plan to rescue the nuns and, and he, he does get them rescued and finds them all spouses so that they would be safe. He finds them all spouses except for one. Her name was Catherine and he couldn't find her a spouse. And she's a bold woman, Catherine was. So finally she steps up to Luther and she says, look, 
if you can't find somebody to marry me, I expect you to marry me. Do the right thing. <laughs> Luther's like, but I don't want to marry you. In fact, one biographer says Martin and Katie did not get along very well because of their clashing personalities. Uh, that plus also he had said in another place, she's not the prettiest one in the lot. And you know, that never helps a romance. But over time, the spirit of the Lord began to prevail on him. And he says, okay, I will, I will marry her. Besides, he wanted to send a message to people who were saying, no, this is wrong. You can't do this. And so he gets married to her privately out in the woods, after which he famously says, the reason I married her was to spite the devil. Again, not the most romantic words ever spoken in a marriage. So after marrying, she moves in and she sets out to change him. She changes his whole house around, moves the whole home around, and even changes his, his diet because apparently he had a lot of flatulence and she figured this isn't gonna be good for either of us. And so she says, I'm changing your diet. And you can imagine, you know, things are a little rocky, a little tense at the first of their marriage, but apparently they both had a good sense of humor. And in teasing each other, they found the doorway to one another's hearts. And Martin suffered with depression deeply. And from time to time, he would sink into a deep funk. And in one such instance, Catherine dressed up like a grieving widow in black, and she met him at the door when he got home. And he looked at her and said, what, are you headed to a funeral? And she said, no, but since you act like God is dead, I've decided I'll join you in the grieving. And that brought them both to laughter. And by the end of her life, having built a home full of laughter and music, many children, Luther wrote of his wife, she was my Lord Katie, my true love, my sweetheart, a gift of God. Oh, it took time, it took years but the finest wine takes the longest time. And that's how it is for us. That's how it'll be for you and that's how it is for me. But friends, the dream, it is achievable. We just have to die to our selfishness and put into practice the sorts of things that God's word gives to us. I know that I wanna do that and I want you to as well. If you wanna to talk to somebody, you need a pastor to give you a little coaching or just to kinda of help you get started up again, why don't you reach out? Even this week, reach out to Pastor Dan or Pastor Wayne and let's get you an appointment. And let's start moving towards the finest wine. Imagine a church full of thriving marriages, families. That's what I want. Let's go for that. Let's do whatever it takes for Jesus' sake. Why don't we pray together? And if, if you're with your spouse right now, why don't you hold hands wherever it is that you are? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truths of your word. The truth that you can turn the foulest of marriages into the finest wine. It does take some 
some sacrifice. It does take some, some dying to our selfishness. But that's really required of any friendship, of any relationship, whether it's a, just a, a pal, a friend at work. Uh, if it's going to work, there has to be some sacrifice that we make. Lord, I pray for marriages. Uh, for those that have been married many years, for those that have been uh, just gotten married and all those in between. Lord, I pray that you would do a new work, that you would be working miracles, that hearts would be growing softer, that people would be finding healing, and that you will be glorified in all of it. And friend, if you're watching right now and you've never invited Christ into your heart, that's where you must start. You have to invite him to the party in the first place. And you can just borrow my words as I pray right now. You can just say, Lord Jesus, I'm asking you to come into my life, into my heart, to take up residency within me. I need you to forgive me of my sins, to cleanse me of all unrighteousness, to fill me full of your spirit, to teach me what it means to follow Jesus. I wanna learn how to be a disciple. And I wanna learn how to walk according to your purposes and plans. Won't you do a new thing in my life? And we pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.